Hello and welcome to the very first episode of Behind the Glass, a podcast series brought to you by Iger Studios. I'm your host, Dom Richmond, and in this series, we'll be speaking to music producers and engineers whose work in the studio has helped create some of the greatest records ever made. In this first episode, I caught up with Stephen Street, a Grammy Award-winning English music producer best known for his work with The Smiths, Blur, Pete Doherty and The Cranberries. Stephen was born in London in 1960 and started his musical career in the late 70s playing in various bands around London, which culminated with him playing bass in ska pop group BIM. After hearing of a job at Island Records, he went along for an interview and 24 hours later landed the job as assistant engineer. Working in the wonderfully invigorating and inspiring atmosphere at Ireland, Stephen worked his way up to house engineer and it was there where he first met the Smiths. During his prestigious career, Stephen has continued to work successfully with many exciting acts from the UK's alternative music scene, such as Baby Shambles, The Ordinary Boys, New Order, Maccabees, The Cortinas and many more. I caught up with Stephen to talk all things music production, what it's like working with big personalities in the studio and the process of creating those hit records. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Stephen Street. Hey Stephen. How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, are you? Yeah, good. How have you been keeping then in this uh, in this pit yeah, of isolation? Not too bad. How, I mean, um, you know, obviously we're all kind of not knowing whether we can go into. I mean, I've got a studio set up. I'm actually in, in the same building where Damon Albarn's got his studio, so I've got a, a room in there. And technically speaking, we're not really supposed to go into the building, but I have been going in and doing a little bit, kind of some mixing and stuff. But uh, yeah, it's um, it's worrying times, obviously, you know, for the recording industry. And it was it wasn't in the healthiest of places, and you know, in, in the first instance, you know. But uh, this is going to be another kind of kick in, in the nether regions, as it were. Well, that's, so, I mean, it's, yeah. very, it's very difficult to. It's. I think it's more of a guilt thing. There's. I've had a lot of people reach out to us and say, you know, come from finish that vocal. Can I do this? Can I do that? I, we just can't take the risk. You know, it's a bit. Can't, um, can you? No, you really no, can't. So. So I guess, I mean, well, what, have you been finding any other ways to do things at home? Have you got a small... I mean, I'm just kind of in a spare room with barely anything other than a, a bit of a focus, right? So I'm just in a bit of mix. Yeah, I mean, I've got, got a very old kind of power. I've got a little kind of home set up, but nothing major because everything that I had, I took into my major room. I've got a kind of in a proper... Well, I've got iMac Pro now um, set up with, a, with an audience desk and I've got my outboard equipment and everything, which is where I've been based... Uh, for the last well, two and a half years at Damon's uh, studio. And before that, I was based uh, in Maloco. Maloco have got a building um, in, uh, in yeah. South London, and I was based there for about seven years. So, I mean, that seems to be the way a lot of producers have gone over the last decade or so. You know, in the old days, we just, just used to go to whatever studio the band or the record company used to hire. Now we're kind of all expected to have our own kind of rooms, as it were, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, where, so where is it based then now? Where are you based with, with near da- in Damon's place? Whereabouts? Well, I mean, that, that studio Thirteen, which is Damon's studio. Right. Yeah, he had um, on the ground floor. He had two live rooms, and he wasn't using both live rooms. So one of those live rooms was turned into a, a room for me. If you go on the Maloco website and put in the bunker, uh, you'll you'll see 
you'd, you know, you'd see my, my room. Yeah, yeah. But, I'm, still, so, I'm still managed by Maloko as far as the room is concerned. Ah, right, makes sense. So, how, so okay, let's dive, let's dive back, if you will, back, back to the beginning. Then how did you get your, um, how did you kind of get your start in music? Did you play in bands or did you, were you formally educated in music? How, how did it sort of work for you from the... From yeah, the- I, was, I was a bass player in a band and you know, we had a record deal, but nothing really came of it. Uh, this is kind of the tail end of the 70s going into the early 80s toured with the beat the band that was you know the two-tone label um as a support band and you know things are okay but it never really took off and it kind of got to the early 80s and at that time i was very um i'd, al- I'd always been interested in the career of tony visconti because i was a huge bowie and Boland fan and i was thought oh, yeah. who is this exotically named person that put these records together that i love so much so even as a very young teenager i kind of picked up on the idea of um you know being quite intrigued by who this guy was and ken scott obviously as well you know and and i suddenly realized as i was going through the latter years the 70s the punk thing the post-punk thing there was a lot of, there were a lot of young producers like martin russian martin hannett steve lily white uh to a lesser degree john lecky and chris thomas who were a, bit, a little bit ahead of them but i noticed there were these kind of engineers who were kind of becoming producers so obviously there were you know they were very talented sonically and, and they were going in working with really good bands and making great records and i thought you know I thought I quite fancy some of that rather than just being a bass player in a band and I wasn't a particularly fantastic musician but I knew enough to get by so I thought if I could learn how to uh, master the recording studio as it were as a recording engineer and link that with my um, musical knowledge that I had you know uh, perhaps I could hopefully get somewhere as a a budding record producer and so and, uh, I wrote to all the studios and, you know, as usual, uh, you don't hear much back. But then I did finally hear about a job going at Island Records and I joined there. And, um, and that was quite, you know, intense because I was kind of for, for a while, I was the only assistant engineer there. And I wasn't really treated as a T-boy either. You know, I, I was actually kind of getting my hands on I and mean, the engineers were very encouraging that I was working with. And so within a couple of years of joining Island, I was... I had become one of the in-house engineers there. Okay, so is that so? So obviously, you quite—it's widely known if you work with the Smiths. Was it there that you did the first things? That was my first big break. I mean, as we all know in this industry, that's what you need. You know, uh, sometimes to kind of break out of, um, well, to, to get up the ladder, as it were. You know, and, and uh, fortunately, I was working at Island Records uh, in the studio, and. Um, they had a, a, a weekend session and the studio manager said to me, you've got a band coming in at the weekend. And at, at, at this point, Ireland were sometimes taking in work from other labels because they wanted to make a little bit of money. So I think they were investing in a new desk. And um, he said, can you come in and do a session over the weekend? And I said, yeah, who is it? And my manager said, uh, well, it's a band called The Smiths from Love Trade. And I was like, yeah, absolutely. Because at this point already, I think this charming man had been a hit. And... Um, I was like, yeah, absolutely. So I just went out of my way to be as helpful as I possibly could be uh, for, on that session. Uh, and that session actually was working with John Porter as well as the producer. Uh, and that was Heaven Knows and Miserable Now. So that was the first session that I worked on with them. So so how did that then lead into the albums that you, that you did then? Did it, did... Well, um, 
I mean, it was, it, I mean, that, that was a kind of, it was a three day session we did and it went really well. And I always remember Morrissey and Mark kind of taking you know, my, my name and I was like, oh great, I made you know, a good impression here, you know, kind of asked me my details and stuff. Um, and then in, as it worked out, in fact, the next single they did, uh, which was William, was really nothing, they did in a different studio with a different engineer. So I was like, oh God, you know, that, that ship has passed, you know, it, it didn't come to anything. But uh, very shortly thereafter, I took a phone call from Jeff Travis at Rough Trade saying um, the band wants to do the next album, which was Meeting's Murder, and they want to produce it themselves, but with an engineer they like and trust, would you be up for it? So I was asked then to work with them on Meeting's Murder. And that was the start of that relationship, really. Ah, right. So have you... so? You know, working with someone like Morrissey, um, how do you how do you work? Because you said there that both of those guys, I'm assuming Johnny and, and Morrissey, both produced it and you engineered. It. How does that relationship work then in the studio when you when you're doing that? When you're kind of well, assisting it? I mean, how- I mean, it's it's like when you're the only person working. Like I was the only person in the room with the engineers. Uh, sorry, with the band rather. Um, you're taking on without even realizing it, a lot of kind of production kind of responsibility um, because I, I was um, really trying to make it sound as impressive as I could straight away uh, with, say, for instance, drum sounds and drum reverbs. As you know, back in the 80s, it was a very big deal. So, you know, I would be there straight away getting, uh, as we were going from one song to the other, trying to choose sounds and things to put on the drums to make it sound right for that song. And so... And hopefully trying to kind of keep one step ahead, as it were, to impress, you know, the band, especially Johnny, obviously, because obviously Johnny, you know, was like the main kind of musician, as it were, in the band. Although I must stress that when it comes to the Smiths, so too much focus is on Morrissey and Mark, and not enough emphasis is given to Mike and Andy, because they were an incredible rhythm section. And Andy Walk, his bass playing was something else, it really, really was. So, but anyway, I, I digress slightly there. But I, I just wanted to try and be as impressive as I could be and keep, you know, as I say, one step ahead so that I could get it. So when they came back in the room after being out there and running through songs, try and get it sounding sonically as good as I possibly could. And, um, and that kind of paid dividends, really. And so what happened was, I mean, Meters Murder, you know, it was produced by the Smiths and engineered by Stephen Street. And when it got to the Queen, he said, it was produced by Morrissey and Ma, but I was also getting a production royalty on that record, although I didn't get the credit. But then by the time we got to the last album, uh, it was co-produced by myself and Morrissey and Ma. So it was a nice gradual kind of step up the ladder. So as, as a producer, when you make three great albums like that, what, what's it like after that? You know, how, how does that go from, you know, the time from there to, you know, working with a band like Blur, for example? That, what happened in that time? You know, you must have had well, quite a lot I of mean, offers. Obviously, people go, oh, it's just a Smith, you know, you're bound to make a good record with them. You can, you know, can you do it with other people? And at the same time, I was trying to work, you know, obviously with other people as, as a young kind of engineer producer. Um, and although I must probably didn't have the same success with those other acts as I did with the Smiths, it was still a nice learning curve because, as you know, in this game, you never stop learning anyway. You know, yeah. and every, every new band or new artist you work with, you get a new experience and you get you learn something out of it. Um, but obviously, uh, what happened here with the Smiths and the breaking up was that was the next really big step for me, the next big change, because obviously what happened there 
um, is I became Morris's co-writer for his early solo records. And that was a, a real big step up the ladder because that really was pruning that I was coming in from a musical angle as well as just engineering. So that was a, a chance that I really didn't want to blow. I mean, you can imagine the Smiths were so revered that if I tr if I had really messed up the, those early Morrissey recordings and we came out of the real clangor, uh, I would have been public enemy number one. So it was very risky, and I can always remember feeling a lot of pressure at the time while we were doing, you know, the Be the Hate album and the singles around it. So was it a, was but, it a similar sort of process then um, for the Viva Hate album? You know, because obviously now without Johnny in the picture, you've got yourself and Morrissey. Did you sort of use the same process? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I was very aware that, especially later, as I think the very early Smith stuff, I think Morrissey and Mars did write face to face, you know, kind of in a bedroom or whatever, and then took it in and rehearsed it with Mike and Andy and rehearsed it up but as time went on I was aware that Johnny was kind of writing demos on the cassette and sending those to, to Morrissey in fact for even the second album onwards I think that was the way he was working and you know so what, you, what one would have to do would be you'd have to create a, a backing track as it were you know the whole vibe of it whether it be a slight glam rock tune or kind of a three four time waltzy ballad thing and you'd send all these ideas off to him, hoping that he would be inspired by one of them and would then want to work on it. Okay. So when the Smiths broke up at the end of Strange Place, Here We Come, I really thought it was just a little tiff and that they were going to be back together again within six months. You know, I really thought they would come to their senses, as I'm sure all their fans did, you know. And I just sent a cassette of some ideas that I had to Morrissey because I thought there was nothing left for B-sides in the can. Johnny had gone. They tried to do another session with another guitar player, a guy called Ivor Perry, who was in a band called Easter House, and that hadn't worked out. So I thought, well, I might as well get my kind of tuppence worth in there. So I sent off this cassette to Morrissey, said, you know, forgive me for being presumptuous, but if there are any ideas here that could be useful as B-sides, because for the next singles coming out from Strange Ways, they, they needed some B-sides. And I fully expected, I, uh, well, A, no answer at all, yeah. <laughs> or... Or be, um, yeah, that, uh, yes, thanks for the offer, but no thank you. You know, I mean, I really, because Morris, you can, you know, it, it can be, it can be, you know, you can really hit periods of uh, time with him where you just don't get any communication. But he came back very quickly saying, um, you know, I, I, I really do want to work with you on this. And I thought I want it to be a solo record rather than Smith's. So that was it. So it was exciting, but as I said, it was a huge challenge and it was quite nerve-wracking. And that was kind of, that was April, sorry, August um, um, of 87. And so I basically then kind of dropped everything else I was working on and carried on writing songs at home on my home setup. I had a little Fostex uh, kind of uh, eight-track kind of setup by that point and making up these cassettes and sending them off to him. And um, by, I think by the old, yeah, by Christmas of that year, we had Viva Hate in, in the can, which was quite incredible when you think about it. It was quite a quick turnaround. So then let's talk a little bit about Belair then, because that was that the next the thing that you that really talked well, about? How did you come to form a relationship? Yeah, well, what happened there is so after the success that I had with Morrissey and so on, I kind of felt like I wanted to put a little bit of something back into the industry. So I tried to start a record label for a while, started my own label called the Foundation Label. But uh, what I did, kind of wrong there was I was trying I was spending all my own money rather than <laughs> trying to get I mean nowadays most produ producers if they have a label they often go to you know 
a bigger label that kind of helps fund it a little bit or at least takes some of the share. But I was trying to do it all myself and uh, it got to a point after I think we'd released three albums and you know countless singles by different artists that I couldn't really keep it going anymore. So I kind of wound that up by the early 90s. And... Um, and you're right, I was, kind of, like I, was kind of, I was kind of in need of another big kind of hit again, really. Um, I was ticking along okay, but, you know, uh, nothing that had hit the, the heights of, say, the Smiths. Um, and anyway, mo- most of the time, most records I got involved in, I was approached by either the label or the manager of the band or whatever, and it would go from there. But in this case, I actually heard Blur's first uh, single, uh, She's So High, and I really liked it. And my manager, uh, a, a lady called Gail Colson, she was managing Jesus Jones, who were on the same label as Blur. So I said to Gail, Gail, next time you see David Balfour at Food Records, can you put a word in that, you know, if Blur are looking for someone to work with them, I'd be, I would be very interested. And initially they came back with... Um, thanks but no thanks because they were intending to do the next single with the same team that had done she so high but for whatever reason that hadn't worked out so they came back and said yeah actually we'd like to meet Stephen." and so i met them we had a kind of pub meeting around the corner from food records and um it was agreed that we're going to do a session see what how it would go and i went in the studio with them and recorded what became there's no other way which was a huge hit for them so that was great so i was then invited to kind of do a few more tracks with them by this point they'd already started a fair chunk of the the first album the leisure album uh and um yeah i ended up doing about a third of that of that first record and that was the start of well as you know quite a long career with them what's it like i mean obviously you've seen them develop over the last 25 30 years as a band is this process still the same or is it very different now do they come i mean obviously they're well what hit me straight away was it was as soon as i met them i knew there was a chemistry there that i saw i saw very similar kind of links between them and the smiths they were a they were very hard working b they were very talented c they were very driven you know, there was definitely you know, the ideas that Morrissey had, you know, how he was going to do things. Damon was very much like that. Graham being a great guitar player. Johnny being a great, you know, I mean, it was, there were a lot of similarities. Although, sonic, you know, sound-wise, they were very different. But there were a lot of similarities. And I could see there was something really special about them. They looked great as a band. You know, every photo, every photo session you saw of them, they looked like a group. You know, there was, there were certain things about them you just knew were dead right. So I, I, I felt a very... Uh, strong kind of link with them uh, very quickly actually uh, we got on very well straight away and um, it was kind of interesting because I was not actually in the, um, in the in the record label's thoughts to do the second record uh, in oh. fact they started the second album Modern Life is Rubbish or what became Modern Life is Rubbish with uh, Andy Partridge from XTC who's you know, a very talented musician you know and uh, but for whatever reason that did, that didn't work out so um you know it was a kind of chance meeting i, I had with graham one night at a, a cranberries gig of all places and um you know i think uh, i kind of I, could, I saw graham and he was looking a bit down and i kind of asked him what was going on and he kind of top admitted that they'd been going through the mill a little bit making this next album and they were feeling the pressure a bit, and it wasn't quite working. And I kind of said to him, oh, you'll be great, don't you worry. You know, I gave him a little bit of a pep talk saying, yeah, you're a fantastic guitar player, you're in a great band, I'm sure it's going to work out. And he must have gone back to Damon and 
mentioned that he met me because within a few days I got a sort of phone call from Damon saying, you know, can we meet and have a chat about potentially working together again? So it just shows you if I had perhaps if I hadn't met Graham that night at that gig, it might never have happened, you know. Well, the, yeah. the interesting thing I find with Blur is because I mean, one of my favorite albums of all time is The Great Escape, and you've got songs like The Universal, Arnold Same, and Country House all appearing on the same record. And to me, there's such drastically different ideas going on. How do you find working with a band that has such a range of different ideas? And well, that was always the case. I mean, you know, if you listen to um, if you listen to um, Park Life, you know, stylistically, it's here, there, and everywhere, all over the place. As as in fact, is Modern Life is rubbish. But Park Life was, you know, like that too. And I like that. I'm I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of that kind of thing. That lineage of the Beatles, you know, and the Kinks and that kind of thing, where you know the Beatles, the White Album, it's it's here, there, and everywhere, but it's like, it, but it's still identifiable as, as the Beatles. Yeah. And in fact, you know, we had that with the Smiths too. You know, you'd have something like you know, Vicar in a Tutu, with you know, uh, last night I dreamt somebody loved me. You know, they, they were the, the strength they knew as writers. They knew they could do everything, and it was still hopefully hang together as a record. I mean, sometimes people do get it wrong, but I felt with the Smiths and with Blur, we got it right, you know? Uh, stylistically, we could be all over the place, but as long as we did it well, and there was something about it which glued it together, some kind of chemistry that people could believe in, then it's going to work. And I think we managed to achieve that. Yeah, totally. I mean, that, yeah, the, especially, with, especially with The Great Escape. I, can, I mean, you know, when you hear songs like, um, like Big, Big Sky, you know, that's, that's very kind of, I can hear the influence from the kinks in there straight away and stuff like that. Yeah, you know, thinking, it's like for every Blur album, there's going to be a lovely ballad on there somewhere. And there will be a real horrible, punky little fast song, like Bank Holiday or Globe Alone, you know what I mean? Yeah. Something that's really kind of brattish and so, because it's kind of like, let's get it out there, you know. They, and that's what song two was in Blur. Blur. It was just, a, it, there was no thought about that being a smash hit single. It was just like, that's going to be the fast or one of the fast punky songs in the record, you know? Yeah, could you, could you tell us a little bit about how that song came? Because obviously that was huge and that was kind of one, one of my f first kind of earliest memories of, uh, of Blur growing up was that song. But I, I, there's lots of different stories about how it was recorded and whether it was going to actually appear as a single, whether it was just a, a kind of... Well, they, well, one of the first things, were, well, by the time we got to the Blur album, the fifth album, the band were, at the beginning of that record, weren't in a good place. They'd been touring non-stop and Graham wasn't in a great place with, you know, he's drinking kind of, and he wasn't in a great place relationship-wise with Alex, you know, he was kind of, there was, in fact, one of the first things I had to do when Damon kind of called me to ask about working with them on the blowout was to go and have a meeting with Graham and try and talk him into coming into a studio because Graham was like, I don't want to be anywhere for, anywhere near the band for, you know, the next few months. So it was... You know, I was obviously delighted to be asked back because I knew that the band wanted to do something different for this record. So often that means getting a new producer. But fortunately for me, that wasn't the case. So I thought, well, we're going to have to think of doing things slightly different on this record. So one of the things we decided that we, we were going to do were, A, not work in Mason Rouge Studios, which is where we recorded all the previous four albums and go somewhere different. And also I wanted to bring something new to the working relationship. So... I invested in Radar. I don't know if you're aware of what Radar was. Radar yeah, was yeah. this kind of hard drive recording system. Yeah. Um, because I, I didn't want to go anywhere near Pro Tools at, at this point. Um, a, because it didn't sound very good. And B, 
the thought of doing what we do now without even thinking about it, but, you know, this thing of constantly looking at a screen and pushing a mouse around, yeah. it just filled me with horror. I wanted to have a remote next to me at the desk with 24 buttons I could hit record, be at the desk and record, because that's how I was used to working. And Madar gave me that. It gave me that, I, that, that kind of... It's familiar, you know, 24 tracks, arm recalled, hit play, you know, it's all, it was just, it just felt natural. It felt like tape, but it wasn't. It was hard drive recording. So then that also gave me this ability to edit things quickly because um, that was something I wanted to do. I wanted to let the band just play and then edit together the best bits. So I invested in 16 track of the radar, the first radar, and we had that. And, um, and that was very, very useful in, as I say, letting the band just play and cut things down. I mean, Essex Dogs was, like, uh, I think, about 15, 16 minutes long, them just kind of playing over a drum loop. And then, again, I kind of edited all the best bits together. And song two, I always remember there was a very basic demo of it, but nothing like the demo as the band play it now. I think it was the Stamen playing it kind of a bit slower and more acoustic with a like a whistle type thing you know on it and we decided we wanted we were going to kind of lash into this song and try and make it one of the the punkier tracks as i said and i wanted to put together a loop because sometimes when a drummer plays over a loop they play in a certain way and also those as, as do bands you know it kind of gives them a solid kind of background to play to and we decided to record there were two drum kits in the room because we had one whacked up differently for two different sounds and i remember dave and graham going out and hitting this rhythm this kind of rhythm they could hear in their heads kind of for the, the rhythm of the, the, the verses. And um, I decided just, just to record it using the room mics. So I think it was just one or perhaps it might have been two, but, you know, it was, it was a very kind of simple sound, but, but just the, the distant mic, the room mic. And then I just marked it in, marked it out on the radar, you know, just like you could roll the, 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 the scroll wheel to get the front of the bass drum and... Did that loop that and that is the drum loop you hear at the beginning of song two played that down they just rap, they just played what they played on top of it it came together in one afternoon and it was no pressure on us at all it just fell out of the sky it really did and, and that's why i think that worked that song and it, you know the the the, the 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 lyrics are nonsensical i mean the idea was damon was going to try and write, write something more that made more sense. But every time we tried to do that, it just didn't work. It didn't have the same kind of vibe. So a lot of the vocal on that, something, a good chunk of it, about 60 to 70% is kind of the original guide vocal. But that sounds to me, yeah, it's, it's a band playing in a room with the idea. And I yeah. guess, do you, find, do you find things like that sometimes are the best things that work? Exactly, exactly. And so Rodol was brilliant, you know, and the band enjoyed it too, because in see, back in the day, when you were working on tape, you know, tape was expensive, you know? So you'd record on a piece of tape and there'd be sometimes, you know, you've got two tracks, you've got two titles already on the reel and you've got one little bit of tape left and you're trying to kind of get the next song on there. And so you'd record on it and, you know, you have your click track or whatever and it's not quite right, so you go over it again. And, you know, it was, sometimes it was quite, you know, nail-biting because you, know, you don't want to go over a performance and it go get worse, you know, that kind of diminishing returns thing that can happen. So... But with Radar, there was none of that worrying about trying to fit it into a piece of tape or whatever. It just, just I could do countless performances, uh, or they could, and I could record countless performances. Well, having said that, you know, you know, it's like six or seven. If you go more than that, it starts. Yeah. Going yeah. Down, you know, you know. So when did you make the transition then to Pro Tools? Then what's 
How well, I just I stuck with radar after after that initial radar one. I bought radar two. I bought twenty four tracks of it this time, and I, that was my go to machine for many 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 years. Um, I think it was about midway through the two thousands, you know, uh, about two thousand five, two thousand six, that I kind of realised that Pro Tools was becoming this industry standard, and I better start learning my chops, as it were, you know, learning how all the commands are, otherwise I'm going to get left behind. So I kind of joined in around about then, yeah. So you mentioned so you mentioned uh, like the punky elements of blow and stuff, but if we're talking more recently, kind of what I'm thinking of with the punky side is sort of um, the baby shambles and Pete, Pete Doherty things that you worked on. Right. Yeah. So what was the relate? How did you come across Pete then working with him? Because obviously at the time, um, he, obviously his, li- his life is you know it's, it's notorious for his lifestyle. Yeah. It's like working with someone who you kind of anticipate is going to be potentially difficult in the studio. Yeah, I, I, I was a huge fan of the first Libs album, Libertines album, and so when I got, I think, I can't remember how the, exactly how the invite came through, but it came through from someone that represents Peter, it was either the, the management or the label, and asked me if I'd be interested in working with uh, Baby Shambles. Uh, I was like, absolutely. So, now obviously, Pete, as you know, he's, he's notorious for certain lifestyle kind of uh, choices that he's made, and um, I knew that was going to be a demanding thing. Um, however, I'd met the band, and it struck me that, uh, um, that Drew, the bass player, and Adam, the drummer, were really kind of sound, you know, really good, solid musicians and really together. And, you know, they were there for the, the right reasons. I mean, the thing is about Peter, because of his lifestyle, sometimes he's, he's surrounded by vampires, you know, uh, and there's, oh, yeah, there's some, you know, it, there's bad people around him. So... But those two in particular convinced me that this was worth sticking with, you know. And and I won't make out it was a, you know, it was perfect all the way through. There were certain times I had to kind of fire warning shots across his bowels, it were, to try and get him back in line. But at the end of the day, I'm, I'm very proud of the record that we managed to make. It's quite, you know, I made and Karen, well, I actually made two albums with Baby Shambles, but particularly Shot as Nation, I'm really, really proud of. I think, you know, we made a, f- a fine record there. And, um, yeah, it was, as I said, you know, you never stop learning, you know? And, and I think if I, I think, I've dealt with awkward people in the past, awkward people for certain reasons, you know, they're not, but Peter's awkwardness wasn't because of his manner, it was more to do with his lifestyle. So it was a case of man management. It really was, and I think, the experience, experiences that I gained over the previous, you know, 20 years or whatever had really helped for me to kind of get through this. I mean, it was demanding sometimes, and there were a couple of times I came back at the end of the day feeling really, really low. But it was worth it in the end, and I just had to bring all the kind of knowledge that I had uh, and experiences that I'd gone through to the fore to try and get through this. And it must have worked because, you know, Peter did work with me again, you know, despite the fact that sometimes I was quite demanding on him to get the best out of him, you know? I mean, one of the, one of the, one of the things, that, the albums that I think is brilliant for that is the Grace Wastelands, you know, when he did the, the solo record because yeah. it, it doesn't, like, it's a far, it's so different from the kind of shambolic, punky sound of the Libertines. And then he's made this record, which is be- beautifully produced. All credit to you on the production for that. It's beautifully produced. I know you had Graham Coxon on that as well, but was that process different working with yeah. him on a solo instead of working him with, you know, kind of with, with a band? 
was a bit easier um, to work with. I'm glad you mentioned that record because it, it's kind of overlooked a bit, I think, in this country. I mean, I, um, but um, it's one of my favourite records I've ever worked on, to be honest with you. I think it's incredible, uh, that record. You know, I mean, I, Peter is a great poet. I mean, I mean, this is the one, this is it. Uh, it's, you know, I see his lyrics and I see Morris's lyrics and they're, they're all the same standard. You know, they really are. They're fantastic lyrics and they stand up just as, as prose on a piece of paper, you know? Yeah. And he's a lovely, he's a fantastic artist, you know? I mean, underneath this horrible, you know, fug of drug addiction and everything, there's a real talented person there. And that's the person I'm always trying to dig, dig into and get, you know, find and bring to the fore. So when he asked me to work with him, uh, on his solo record, I'm a big fan of, this, of the more mellow moments of Baby Shambles tracks. You know, what I mean, I, I kind of yeah. and, I that, and Libertine's tracks too. And I thought it'd be lovely to do an album, real kind of a singer-songwriter type record. But you know, obviously with it, that kind of edge that Peter has to his music. And um, I thought if I'm going to get him to, and Peter wasn't really particularly in a great place at this point when we in the, when I was first approached to do this record. So I thought, how can I really get him, pull him into line? I thought, well, one of the things I don't want to do is have the guitar player on the Baby Shambles records playing on this, because it's well documented too that Mick, the guitar player in the Shambles, was a user too. Um, yeah, yeah. So I didn't want him anywhere near Peter while we were doing this record, if I could. And so I thought, you know, I, I need to get someone involved if I can, who Peter is also going to be kind of looking, someone he could look up to and, you know, and want to not upset, as it were, hopefully, in the making of the record. So I cut this idea of asking Graham, because I knew Graham's a Libertines fan, and I thought, you know, and Graham, you know, he's had his problems with drink and stuff, so he might be able to relate to Peter's, you know, dilemmas and so on. So I asked Graham, Graham said yes, and I went to Peter said, I've got this idea, Peter, I'd like to get Graham Cox on the record now because I think it would be, you know, something really special. And Peter was like, really? You know, it, it was, so I could see straight away that was going to make him just focus that a little bit more. But I wanted to take a very low-key start to the record. So we started just myself, Peter and Graham, and I would prepare like a simple little kind of drum loop or something and play that. And I would come try and determine what I think the tempo of the song should be. And they would play opposite each other, you know, two acoustic guitars, and then we'd try and sketch some things out. And out of that, we got Arcade, the beginning of um, Last of the English Roses. You know, it was good. It was a good little session. And um, it was obvious it was going to work. So then I got Adam and Drew in from Shambles because I wanted to work with them. I thought they could still, you know, come in yeah. and it would be right. And that was it, really. They, those guys played on the tracks, um, and then we did some more recordings. And you know, I got my usual uh, guy, John Metcalf, and the Duke String Quartet in to do some nice string arrangements. And it all fell into place. And but it was really—I mean, the, the initial demos I got of his were him just singing into a laptop, um, you know, singing straight into the microphone of the of the of the, of the Mac. And they were, you know, sketchy as hell, really were, but. That it, it worked out, and in fact, all those kind of rust. If you listen to the beginning of uh, English Roses, there's all this kind of rustling and static and noise and so on, and that was something I took off the demos. That um, oh, so you kept uh, that in, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. When it, it created a kind of very 
in, I always remember there's this rustling. I mean, God knows what's going on. <laughs> but there's always going rustling going on and, and static, you know, the telephone noise and stuff and, and uh, deep breath. And I just thought, I kind of ca- I captured, this was kind of captured in between two songs, as it were, on his demo recording. And it kind of seemed to be very evocative of, of something that was going on in a place. And I thought, I'm going to use that. And that kind of, yeah, that and the little drum loop was the beginning of what became, you know, last thing, uh, English Roses. So. So, what, so when you, so like you say, working with Peter Graham there, so you kind of put, almost put a band together th- for that one, in effect. How do you yeah. go about working with an artist in the initial stages? Do you have much involvement, like I say, with, with the pre-production and the kind of working out? Because like you say, you work with Morrissey and Johnny and, you know, Pete and Damon. But do you have much of an involvement on that? Do you, do you go and... You hear the songs first do they play them to you or, or do they yeah I mean, sometimes i remember going to pre-production when we did the blow album going into rehearsal room and kind of running through th- running through uh, tracks uh but not always i mean sometimes a band will come to you and they've been knocking the song around live for a while and it's in pretty good shape you know and something it's a case of knowing when to step in and when to step back really you know if it ain't broken don't try and fix it and then there's other times you go well, it's great but let's try and think of a better intro let's try and make it interesting you know or whatever um, I, I don't like to do too much pre-production with, with artists before I go in the studio. I don't like them to get bored of the song before we even began, you know? You, can, over, you can overdo pre-production sometimes. Yeah. So, and sometimes there's details about things you don't really... When you're in a rehearsal room and there's a band playing it or drums in one corner and the bass amp in the other and it's all playing at you, sometimes it's kind of hard to take it all in. It's not until you actually get into a studio and you start hearing the details coming through the speakers and you can start thinking, oh, okay, well, the bass drum and the bass line here, not quite, you know, medium. It's going to deal with that now, you know? So I don't like to get too particular when we do pre-production. I like to kind of let, get the basics of it, right? You know, I say the meat and potatoes, as it were. But the finer details, you know, the final essence, we can get right later on when we're in the studio. Let's not, let's not get too hung up on it, you know? And how about recording vocals then? I mean, do you, um, do you have, like, let's think about a vocal chain. Do you, do you have a specific vocal chain that you kind of know works for these artists? Or, or do you sometimes just do the whole thing live with the vocalist? Or is this something, or do you change it a lot? How, how do you go about doing it? It change, you know. It does depend on what's available in the studio. I mean, I think the most go-to microphone, I guess, over the years has been the U87. So yeah, cool. that's around. But sometimes if you want that kind of close vocal sound, you know, that kind of like song two had, you know, it's a good old, sure, you know, yeah. SM, you know SM57. Or sometimes uh, the SM7B, you know, the, the big brown mic. Uh, I use one of those uh, quite often. Um, but you know, the, as vocal chains go, yeah, there's always going to be some kind of form of compression on it, obviously, and something just to filter out some of the bottom end and boost the top slightly. EQ wise, I'm not don't get too hung up, hung up on it. Can be whatever's available. Uh, compression wise, normally 1176, I think, for yeah. me personally. Uh, or if if I can't get one of those, uh, I quite like the, the distressers work pretty well, you know. Yeah. So do you do you prefer using outboard or are you, are you very much in the box now with your mixing and plugins and stuff? Or is uh, it- I like to use outboard, um, especially going in. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, now when I'm mixing, I've got a mixture of, of um, obviously I've got quite a lot of plugins now, but but the the main key things like the vocals or perhaps the drums, I like to have going through an external, you know, hard, hardware. Uh, I use the Phoenix compressor. The, the harmonic culture, Phoenix compressor on my drums and all mixes now. 
And um, I've actually recently got one of those Black Lion compressors, which is a kind of like a wannabe 1157 compressor. And they're really good. I oh. use one of those on, on, on the vocals. Uh, API EQ. Uh, um, so I like to use a little bit of outboard as well. I don't like to be, uh, you know, too uh, reliant on, on the plugins. Yeah, well, a lot of people now, it's, it's sort of a bit, bit of both. Lots of people that I've spoken to, they always going in, they'd prefer to have a, you know, a good chamber. It, yeah. How do you how do you find uh, how do you find recalls then? Because you know when you're recalling stuff and mix revisions, I think everything. Make notes in a little booklet. Uh, my actually my audience desk, I can I can record the levels. I've got an audience then, uh, so I can do we do sixteen tracks of MIDI kind of faders as it were, and you can record your levels in. So I often do that. Uh, sometimes I just make notes, you know, uh, of the levels in the booklet. And I just make notes. I've got a certain, as I say, I've got certain go-to plugins that I know I like to use. And so all I have to do is kind of, yeah, make notes in a book, really, uh, to go along with my uh, mixes. And I can normally, you know, recall them pretty close, to be honest with you. Yeah. So you've had pretty, you've had a pretty successful career all this time. What about if with people listening who, um, who are kind of just getting into it? Maybe they've done a, you know, a college course and they're looking to get kind of you know, get, get stuck into recording and get, um, get their initial clients, you know, how, how do you think people, how do you think the best way to go about doing that is in, in, you know, modern day? Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, as I say, I, I, when I just mentioned about making notes, that's something I've done throughout all my, um, career. Um, you know, back in the day, we used to make notes from the track sheets, you know, yeah. uh, now, uh, and then I, you know, I mean, the way I've always done vocals is always been, you know, um, you know, say four or five takes or perhaps even more, uh, and have a column with the lyrics and the columns down the side and I make notes and little ticks of the, like, the good performances because once someone gets past four performances if you can remember which ones were great it's difficult you know you need to kind of make little notes so that you, you can do it speeds up the whole process of making your compiled vocal I think you can refer to your notes and go no oh, that was really good or whatever so always make notes because you, you always need to come back to them at some point yeah um and then, as I mentioned earlier on, like, it's very difficult, but when you do get your break, when you do get into the studio, try and keep one step ahead. You know what I mean? Like, get there early, get your leads set up and everything. So once the drummer gets in, you can get your mics around things quick. You know, um, just try and step, keep one step ahead, really. And, um, and don't get too hung up. And st- uh, this is something that happens now, I notice. Like, a lot of people get too hung up at staring at the screen all the time. Sometimes just take yourself away from the screen and listen to the bloody speakers. You know what I mean? Listen to what's going on. Uh, because sometimes our eyes deceive us. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. You see something and we think because we see it, it's happening. It's, and it, sometimes it's not. You know, you've got to kind of focus on or listen rather than too much kind of focusing on what's going on on the screen. I, can't, I, I like to turn the screens off and listen quite a lot. It's a great idea from time to time. I mean, we're all falling into it. I've done the same thing sometimes. So I'm thinking, oh, I can swear I'm here. I'm, I'm doing something. And I think I can swear I can hear it happening. And realise it's in bypass. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, oops, you know. But, you, but your brain tells you so firmly that it's making the change. I've done that so yeah. often. You, I'm keep gaining it. Yep, yep, yep. And then you're like, hang on a minute. I, there's no, you know, it's in bypass. <laughs> It's such a crazy. We're all being there. We're all being there. It's that placebo effect, isn't it? 
So other than obviously the technical side, what other key skills do you think you need to be a producer? So someone said to me recently that a large percentage of it is good social skills and being able to... Yeah, management is a huge part of it. As I mentioned about the artists that I've dealt with, you know, dealing with Morrissey and dealing with Damon and dealing with Pete Doherty, it's not how good you twiddle the knobs. It's how I deal with them as people. Yeah, yeah. It's knowing, as I say, when to step in and when to step back and when to kind of like... I mean, one of the great things about... Uh, I, I like dealing with bands because... I sometimes like to kind of have that little bit of a moment when I say to the lead singer, come on, it's not about you at the moment. This is about, I want to get focused on getting the drums right. So just back off a little, <laughs> a little bit. Not, I won't say it like that, obviously. But it's kind of, you know what I mean? I'm, I try and make sure everybody, everyone in the band is feeling special and they're feeling important. I think if you focus too much on one person all the time, even if it is the alpha male or the alpha female of the band, you're going to do that at the expense of your relationship with the other people in the band. So always be aware that this band is a team and they all need, it's a bit like being a football manager, you don't just focus on the goal score, you know what I mean? You've got to focus on what the defence is doing too. Yeah. And this is what I'm saying, is you've really got to be really open to all of their needs and desires and really make sure that you're not just too narrow-minded and dealing with one person. And I guess uh, this is obviously with bands, yeah, but it's important. I guess it's rare to find a band where you don't have to deal with the kind of personalities, it really, you know, the, na the yeah. nature of what it is. So I guess that's, it would be man management, like you say, it's a good way of uh, describing it. It's a really, it must be a really important thing. What, what are you working on at the minute? Have you got anything, um, anything interesting or is there any, any new band? Yeah, well, you... There was a band that was on my label that I, I talked about earlier on. I had a label called um, the Foundation Label and there was a band signed to it called Bradford. Um, and two of the guys from that band, the guitar player and Ian, the songwriter, uh, sent me some songs they were working on last year, and, and I really liked them. I thought it was really kind of, you know, good, strong material. So it was decided that we'd kind of put our resources together. And uh, so to all intents and purposes, I kind of joined them. Uh, we're like a trio at the moment, and, and we're making a new Bradford album, which uh, I'm just currently in the, uh, the throes of kind of finishing off. Um, I've got a, a new Pretenders album coming out. It's supposed to be out now, but it's not because of the pandemic that we've got. So that's coming out very, very soon. And I'm hoping to do a little bit more work with Chrissy later on in the year as well. But uh, but that's it at the moment. I mean, as I say, it's all a little bit kind of stand by your beds at the moment. You know. And if, so, if, if, if there's people out there, there's people listening that wanted to, to work with you, do you, is there a way that they can get in touch and work? Yeah, absolutely. I've got a website... Um, it's got a contacts page on there. I think, uh, Stephen Street Audio is the website. And, um, yeah, there's a contacts page on there. So if anyone's got any projects they want to send me to have a listen to, please go ahead. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we'll wrap up there, Stephen, if that's okay. okay it's, been, um, it's been really nice great going through, uh, going through some of your experiences, and I appreciate you taking the time uh, to speak to us. So, um, yeah, I hope I didn't ramble on too much. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, great. Hopefully we'll all be back uh, back in the studios again soon and we can yeah let's hope so let's hope we get through this terrible time you know because it is it's a terrible time it's very testing i mean it's hard for musicians in the first place and but now with this as well it's it's you know it's it's it's, yeah. it's gonna be interesting to see how we get out of this but fingers crossed nice one well it's been really great thanks Stephen. Okay. i appreciate your time nice one take stay safe then take care Speak right, take care all the best bye